The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In our last episode, we focused on the eventful life and dramatic death of one of Japan's greatest 20th century writers. Today, we shift our focus to his works. Yukio Mishima and the Sea of Fertility today on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson, glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here as well. Mishima, I feel like we needed a bit of a rinse after last episode. A cool rain after the fire of, of him in his life. That was, as Paul Theroux once put it, a grisly business. The suicide, the whole life leading up to it was intense, and it could give you a completely misleading view of what it's like to sit down and read Mishima's works. That's one of the great mysteries of art and artists and, and artistry, I suppose. You can go through his stories and novels and look for clues and they're there in retrospect. It's easy to piece together a fascination with beauty and art and sex and death and, and youth and suicide and noble sacrifice. It's easy to look at his childhood, the intensity of the experience where he was kept indoors during his formative years, and the pain of being rejected for service in World War II, and his love for the theater, his desire to rebuild himself into a sort of masculine ideal, his look to the past, his desire to die young. It's easy to see all of this in his life and works and view the day on the balcony as the inevitable culmination of both. But it's also easy not to see that. From his conservative right-wing views, his calls for a return to, the different, to a, a different society, his willingness even to die to carry out those beliefs or to set them in motion, as the only way not to be hypocritical, if that's what was driving him, well, you might expect his books to be the same, full of anger and intensity, burning with politics, the sort of book that grabs the reader by the lapels, demands to know what the hell the reader is waiting for, insists on righteousness, explains too much, and generally spits out words at the reader's face until the reader sags limply to the side, forced to relent. Well, readers usually aren't forced to relent by books like that. They never are, really. Sometimes an author gets away with it, I suppose. Usually, if we already agree with him or her, but mostly, we just drop the book and move on. We don't look to literature to lecture us. Mishima's prose, though, doesn't do that. It's different. The attitude is different. The stance of the author, the capacity, the talent. He's a brilliant writer capable of dropping sentences onto the page as softly as snow falling from the sky. We're going to read from Spring Snow today. It's a little facile to say there's a haiku sensibility to Mishima's works, and in saying that, one risks the judgment of the listener, that it's blending two elements of Japanese culture together in an unsubtle way. Fine, so be it. <laughs> I'll take that risk. Because that's what it's like for me when I read the book. I feel like I'm in the hands of not just a great novelist, but a great poet as well. Not just for his command of language, but someone who gives me space. Room to think. Room to breathe. Room to experience. You'll hear it for yourself today. We're going to read the first two chapters of Spring Snow. But first... Let's take a quick break and hear from a few listeners and then set up Spring... Uh, spring... Spring No... Spring no NOH, maybe Spring Snow, and how it fits into Mishima's masterpiece, the four volume Sea of Fertility. Hey, grown ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. First up today, Samantha. Subject, nothing to look at, just a fan email. Dear Mr. Jack Wilson, I'll try to keep it short and simple. I've been a fan of your podcast, The History of Literature, for several months now, and I can say that you talking about all these different kinds of literature has been a gateway for me in discovering great stories to read. I'm a former honor student in her mid-teens living in the capital of the Philippines, and my friends all know me as that kid who's way into Western literature and I owe it to you for teaching me all this stuff. My favorite episodes are your take on Romeo and Juliet and the story of Jane Austen and Tom LaFroy. I actually haven't read most of the books discussed in your episodes, but after I listen to your discussion, I sure as heck want to. Because of face-to-face classes being canceled in my area, I haven't had a proper lecture about literature. Thank you for being the voice in my earphones that almost resembles what I most miss about English class. Lots of love from the Philippines. Samantha. Oh, Samantha, that's so wonderful. And lots of love from Crazy Town. Right back to you in the Philippines. I love the Philippines. I had such a great time there. We have had a flurry of emails from the Philippines lately. (laughs) Interesting. One of the joys of doing this podcast is knowing that I'm still traveling, in a sense, even as I sit here, stuck in the Jack Wilson studio. You are not alone. Samantha, you have fellow listeners to this podcast out there, including many your age, which means fellow kindred spirits right there in the Philippines. I love that the episodes you like are the Romeo and Juliet episode and the Jane and Tom episode, Young Love, as the theme for both of those, which must mean there's still room for hope in this next generation. Well, of course there is. As long as we have youth, we will have hope, I suppose. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Maybe it's incumbent upon the oldsters to make sure that it's true. Speaking of which... Oh, wait. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I wasn't done with Samantha. Thank you for the email, Samantha. I was ready to make a transition before I properly thanked you. Thank you for the email, Samantha. I'm very glad you're with us on this journey. Speaking of which... Now, wait. I can't just go back to that as the transition. Can I... I'm getting all tangled up here. I was talking about youth and hope. Oh, youth and hope. Speaking of which, our next email is from a teacher. And his email made me hopeful. Subject, the Hawthorne episode. Greetings, Jack. I was listening to episode 296, Nathaniel Hawthorne. As I was listening, I heard you mention that Elizabeth Palmer Peabody was married to Horace Mann. That is incorrect as it was Mary Peabody, Elizabeth's sister, who married Horace Mann. Elizabeth remained single for her entire life. Otherwise, a wonderful episode. Hands down the best podcast that I listen to. Sincerely, Joseph, 6th grade U.S. history teacher. Hmm. Correct you are, Joseph, and my apologies for the error. I got all, speaking of tangled up, I got all tangled up in the Peabody's as Hawthorne himself did, I guess you might say. I'm so glad to hear that you enjoy the show. I'm glad that you caught the correction and that you pointed it out in such a warm and easy-to-process way. So many people don't do that. So many people email or text. I guess they 
don't actually text. Well, a couple of friends text me. <laughs> Let me have it. <laughs> but mostly, I mean Twitter, which feels like text. Just blurted out like that. So many people lodge their complaints in a way that rankles. Rankling tweets. That should be a phrase. Stop it with those rankling tweets. You know who you are. You know, Dickens might have named a character that. Rankling tweets of London. <laughs> and you know who rankling tweets would be in Dickens? Someone who's a little supercilious, but who isn't quite as informed as he thinks he is. He has long limbs and a nose like a beak. And he walks around with his eyebrows high and his stilt-like legs. Sniffing at the world as long and rubbery arms, oozing condescension, and getting things wrong. That's the key. Getting things wrong. Rankling tweets. Don't be a rankling tweets, people. And if you know a rankling tweets, block him. Your life will be better for it. Joseph is not a rankling tweets. He's correct when he points out a correction, and he says nice things and sets up the listener to hear the criticism. I didn't read this email thinking, okay, fine, you jerk. I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? I'm only human. Or, no, I was actually right, you jerk. Who do you think you are to take swipes at me? Or just, oh man, if I don't just delete this email, I'm going to explode into a rage. Or at least my Wisconsin version of a rage, which is to sit here and feel bad for a while and then go reach for a bottle of brandy to numb the pain. No. Not Joseph. Joseph points it out kindly in a way that makes me glad to be corrected and eager to do better next time. And guess what? Joseph is a sixth grade teacher of U.S. history. He's got the teacher skills. In my Dickens novel that I'm inventing on the spot here, Rankling Tweets is the principal who roams around telling everyone what to do. And Joseph, last name I unidentified, let's call him Joseph Good. Joseph Good is the one that students actually look to and learn from, and I am happy to be Joseph's student today. And finally, we have a postscript from Hannah, our listener with the young son who listens to the show at nap time and bedtime and finds that the sound of the show helps soothe her little one while she enjoys hearing the stories of writers and books. It's win-win over there at Hannah's house. Uh, P.S., she says, exclamation mark, I listened the other night to your episode on Christopher Marlowe and have had the line, Come live with me and be my love, in my head ever since. The cadence of it is so simply beautiful, I cannot seem to shake it. Hmm. Totally agree. Come live with me and be my love. Excellent. She says, My only experience with Marlowe thus far has been the assignment of Dr. Faustus back in high school, of which I remember very little. The reading of this poem on your show struck me so much I am now inspired to seek out his work. Thank you for this. P.P.S. I love hearing people's favorite books. I think most readers are this way. So assuming you are interested, mine has long been Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. Wishing you well, Hannah. Oh, Hannah, thanks so much for checking in. Your little one has a friend now, by the way. Did you hear? Young Jude. Maybe someday the two of them will get together and save the planet. Let's hope. I have a couple of stories that I'd like to share now, but we are running late, so we'll need to let your email stand on its own until next time when I'll tell those stories, if I remember. Let's do that. One is about your reading of Christopher Marlowe, and one is about where the red fern grows. Let's save those for later. Cliffhanger, people. <laughs> Tune in next time. I'm an absolute, well, I was going to use a bad word here. But that seems unnecessary. I'm an absolute skunk. When it Well, why pick on skunks? It's their nature. They can't help it. What do I say? I'm a rat? Rats aren't trying to fool anyone. Why pick on them? I'm an absolute Jack Wilson when it comes to this. Does that make sense? It's the one, the one thing I don't mind picking on. I'm a Jack Wilson. You know what? I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm desperate. I'll just be, let's go straight at them. Never mind the maneuvers. I'm desperate and clingy. Well, what is, why is this about me? It's not about me. It's about you. You, Hannah, and you, Joseph, and you, Samantha. Thank you for your emails. And you, the listeners, 
That's what this is about. I'm trying to get you all to come back to hear the stories next time. Which is a little sneaky, I suppose, to throw in a cliffhanger like that. Except it's it's probably self-defeating. Because what you really want is to hear from Mishima. So let's get straight to it. We'll have a quick break. Then come back with a description of the Sea of Fertility. And then hear the first two chapters of Spring Snow. After this. Mishima had written a lot by the time he wrote the four books in the Sea of Fertility Tetralogy. He was extremely prolific. He wrote poetry at a young age, but mostly switched to prose and stuck with it. Well, prose and plays and films. He didn't have a dry spell, really, in his life. In his 20 years or so that he was productive, he wrote more than 30 novels, something like 50 plays, a dozen or so collections of short stories, depending on how you count. He was involved with another... 20 or so films, either as an actor, sometimes in the starring role or or in uh, bit parts, or he was writing the script or adapting the script. Some of these were short films. Not all of those were feature length, of course. How could he have the time? His plays were sometimes in the style of kabuki or no drama, modern no, they're called. He wrote essays and criticism as, as well. <laughs> he was a writer. Let's just say that. And he wrote, he was a writer and he wrote a lot. And in his final work, The Sea of Fertility, he gave us four novels. It's often quoted as, quote, the most complete vision we have of Japan in the 20th century, end quote, by the novelist Paul Theroux. You'll see that quote everywhere. Actually, that quote is is cut in half. It's a little bit misleading to quote it that way. It actually comes from a review of the third volume of the Tetralogy, and it was Thoreau looking ahead a bit. The full quote says if, and remember, he hadn't read the fourth volume, they hadn't come out in English at that point when he had written it, and he said, if it, meaning the fourth volume, if it is anything like its predecessors, it will make up the most complete vision we have of Japan in the 20th century. So the publishers, when they choose that quote to blurb, are kind of accepting the premise that the fourth volume was like its predecessors, or enough like its predecessors, that the prediction had come true, so it was fair to just take out the it will of the hypothetical and just say it is. I should also note that the review was written in 1973, so there was still a lot of time left in the century. It's not like he was writing in 1999 or or anything and, and already the century was nearly complete. And yet, in spite of these caveats, it's not an unfair description. The Sea of Fertility is broad, wide-ranging, accomplished, and like Mishima himself, it does cover a lot of the key themes and events and, let's say, interests or fascinations of 20th century Japan. Here's a more recent quote. This one is from Jay McInerney, also writing in the New York Times, like Thoreau was, except this was from 1992, and it came out of a conversation that McInerney had had with Haruki Murakami. So they're both quoted in this piece. He said, quote, Mishima was one of literature's great romantics, a tragedian with a heroic sensibility, an intellectual, an aesthete, a man steeped in Western letters who toward the end of his life became a militant Japanese national- nationalist, end quote. Murakami also talked about Mishima. He said, in Japan, the three main writers of the generation preceding mine are Mishima, Kobo Abe, and Kenzaburo Oe. Among them, I would have to say I like Abe best and Mishima least. I've hardly read Mishima at all, so I don't think there is a resemblance between me and Mishima. And then Murakami went on to say, In a very different sense from Mishima, I am after something Japanese. Let's quote him again. This is interesting to hear Murakami on Mishima, who is kind of coming in his footsteps or or in his shadow generation just after, he said, many Japanese think their language is so unique that foreigners cannot grip its essence, its beauty, or its subtlety. And if some foreigner claims that he has grasped that essence, nobody believes him. 
I think what some young Japanese writers are doing is trying to break, to destroy that stubbornness, to rebel against that certainty. I think what young Japanese writers are doing is trying to reconstruct our language. We appreciate the beauty, the subtlety of the language Mishima used, but those days are gone. We should do something new. And what we are doing as contemporary writers is trying to break through the barrier of isolation so that we can talk to the rest of the world in our own words. The Japanese government and different organizations are very active in having programs of cultural exchange, of introducing kabuki and no to the rest of the world. But kabuki and no, even though they are very excellent forms of art and tradition, belong to the past and are not really talking to the contemporary Japanese. I myself find no and kabuki very boring sometimes. Ordinary Japanese people find them very boring, and I don't blame Westerners for finding them boring. McInerney then says, I imagine that in Japanese literature there would be a certain resentment against your popularity and your refusal to acknowledge certain traditions in Japanese literature. What do older and more traditional Japanese critics think of your work? And Murakami says, It's simple. They don't like me. There is a kind of generational struggle in Japanese letters. Yes, the old gatekeepers. They are just like leaders of the Communist Party in Eastern Europe. The Japanese literary world has a very strong sense of hierarchy, and you have to go from the bottom gradually up. And once you are on the top, you are the judge of other writers. You read each other's works and then give each other awards. But the ones on top don't really care what the young, upcoming writers are doing. When I made my debut as a novelist, they said that Japanese literature was on the decline. It's not on the decline. It's just changing. Many people don't like the change. The older writers live in a very closed world. They don't really know what's going on. End quote. So let's keep that in mind. Yes, we can credit Mishima with defining Japanese culture in the 20th century, but he didn't have the only or even the best definition necessarily. Certainly he didn't have the last. He didn't have the last word. No writer ever can. When we revisit Mishima, we are traveling in time. First, we return to 1970 and the particular sensibilities of that year and that moment in Mishima's life and his story and how he was viewing the world in that era 50 years ago. And second, we look back along with Mishima to 1912 and even further as Mishima was steeped in Japanese history and it was always present in his writings and thought. So, The Sea of Fertility. The Tetralogy as a whole was published over three years, two volumes in 1969, one in 1970, and one in 1971, coming out posthumously, of course. The books are Spring Snow, Runaway Horses, The Temple of Dawn, and The Decay of the Angel. Mishima was at the height of his powers as a novelist, and the project was ambitious and worthy. The four books span the century from 1912 to 1975. They're connected by the spirit of reincarnation. One character, Shigukuni Honda, starts out as a law student in Spring Snow and is a retired judge in the final book. That's the span of his life. Each book tells the story of a different protagonist, and Honda comes to believe that they are the reincarnations of the same person, Kyoake Matsuge, a friend from his youth. Each of them is doomed to die, each reincarnation, and Honda tries to save them from their fate, and his lack of success frustrates and eventually condemns him. The four incarnations or reincarnations are a young aristocrat, as we see in Spring Snow, then in the second book, a violent nationalist. The third book is a Thai princess, and finally, a manipulative and somewhat wicked orphan. With this as the hook, the book or the books can explore a wide range of themes spanning decades of Japanese history. The author explores Buddhism and reincarnation and the philosophy and psychology of recurring lives and karma. The books are suffused with sorrow, that great novelistic emotion. I love sorrow. Regret, nostalgia, sorrow, those ideas and that mood in books, it pulls me in every time. Clouds in my coffee, people. 
and my sky and my mind in the books in front of my eyes. The prose is cool in these books. Some say too cool, too detached. And some say the books don't rise above the emotional and ideological limitations of the author. Most, however, most critics grant Mishima the credit of having superior observational powers, a full command of language and its effects, and a novelist's talent for scene setting. It's kind of what you want from a novelist. A poet's facility with language, a novelist's eye for character and character development, and a filmmaker's presentation of events, small and large, being able to handle those with graceful authority. So we will start today where the tetralogy starts, chapters one and two of Spring Snow, back in 1912. This is the Russo-Japanese War, a war between two empires, had been fought in 1904 and 1905. This is a few years after that. Now we're in a period of transition as Japan is moving from empire to a democratically elected government or the principles of it are taking hold. The bureaucrats and middle-class bourgeois figures are on the rise. It's still an empire officially, but this isn't the period where the noble class or the warrior class are ascendant. It's the period where the emperor is sickly. Emperor Taisho is on the throne. This was a period that lasted about 14 years in Japan, 1912 to 1926. It came between two other emperors. The first one from the Meiji period was chaotic. That was a militaristic age. This one was liberal as the elder statesmen, the oligarchy, gave way to some reforms and increased democratic principles. And the next period, the third of these empires or emperors, was Hirohito who became famous as the emperor during World War II. So the period after this one, starting in 1926, would return to the militaristic empire and the run-up to World War II. This book opens in that middle period, where Mishima is looking back to this period, where by now, in Mishima's world, it stands out as a period in between those two empires. This book, that's where spring snow is set. It's the quietest period of the three. Spring Snow, Chapter 1 When conversation at school turned to the Russo-Japanese War, Kiyoake Matsuge asked his closest friend, Shigakuni Honda, how much he could remember about it. Shigakuni's memories were vague. He just barely recalled having been taken once to the front gate to watch a torchlight procession. The year the war ended, they had both been eleven, and it seemed to Kiyoake that they should be able to remember it a little more accurately. Their classmates, who talked so knowingly about the war, were for the most part merely embellishing hazy memories with tidbits they had picked up from grown-ups. Two members of the Matsuge family, Kiyoake's uncles, had been killed. His grandmother still received a pension from the government thanks to these two sons she had lost, but she never used the money. She left the envelopes unopened on the ledge of the household shrine. Perhaps that was why the photograph which impressed Kiyoake most out of the entire collection of war photographs in the house was one entitled Vicinity of Tukuri Temple, Memorial Services for the War Dead, and dated June 26, 1904, the 37th year of the Meiji era. This photograph, printed in sepia ink, was quite unlike the usual cluttered mementos of the war. It had been composed with an artist's eye for structure. It really made it seem as if the thousands of soldiers who were present were arranged deliberately, like figures in a painting, to focus the entire attention of the viewer on the tall cenotaph of unpainted wood in their midst. In the distance, mountains sloped gently in the haze, rising in easy stages to the left of the picture, away from the broad plain at their foot. To the right, they merged in the distance with scattered clumps of trees, vanishing into the yellow dust of the horizon. And here, instead of mountains, there was a row of trees growing taller as the eye moved to the right. A yellow sky showed through the gaps between them. Six very tall trees stood at graceful intervals in the foreground, 
each placed so as to complement the overall harmony of the landscape. It was impossible to tell what kind they were, but their heavy top branches seemed to bend in the wind with a tragic grandeur. The distant expanse of plains glowed faintly. This side of the mountains, the vegetation lay flat and desolate. At the center of the picture, minute, stood the plain wooden cenotaph, and the altar with flowers lying on it, its white cloth twisted by the wind. For the rest you saw nothing but soldiers, thousands of them. In the foreground, they were turned away from the camera to reveal the white sun shields hanging from their caps and the diagonal leather straps across their backs. They had not formed up in neat ranks, but were clustered in groups, heads drooping. A mere handful in the lower left corner had half-turned their dark faces toward the camera, like figures in a Renaissance painting. Farther behind them, a host of soldiers stretched away in an immense semicircle to the ends of the plain, so many men that it was quite impossible to tell one from another, and more were grouped far away among the trees. The figures of these soldiers, in both foreground and rear, were bathed in a strange half-light that outlined leggings and boots and picked out the curves of bent shoulders and the napes of necks. This light charged the entire picture with an indescribable sense of grief. From these men there emanated a tangible emotion that broke in a wave against the small white altar, the flowers, the cenotaph in their midst. From this enormous mass stretching to the edge of the plain, a single thought, beyond all power of human expression, bore down like a great, heavy ring of iron on the center. Both its age and its sepia ink tinged the photograph with an atmosphere of infinite poignance. Kiyoaki was eighteen. Nothing in the household where he had been born would account for his being so sensitive, so prone to melancholy. One would have been hard-pressed to find, in that rambling house built on high ground near Shibuya, anyone who in any way shared his sensibilities. It was an old samurai family, but Kiyoaki's father, Marquis Matsuge, embarrassed by the humble position his forebears had occupied as recently as the end of the shogunate, fifty years before, had sent the boy, still a very small child, to be brought up in the household of a court nobleman. Had he not done so, Kiyoaki would probably not have developed into so sensitive a young man. Marquis Matsuge's residence occupied a large tract of land beyond Shibuya on the outskirts of Tokyo. The many buildings spread out over a hundred acres, their roofs rising in an exciting counterpoise. The main house was of Japanese architecture, but in the corner of the park stood an imposing Western-style house designed by an Englishman. It was said to be one of four residences in Japan, Marshal Oyama's was the first, that one might enter without removing one's outdoor shoes. In the middle of the park, a large pond spread out against the backdrop of a hill covered with maples. The pond was big enough to boat on. It had an island in the middle, water lilies in flower, and even water shields that could be picked for the kitchen. The drawing room of the main house faced the pond, as did the banqueting room of the western house. Some two hundred stone lanterns were scattered at random along the banks and on the island, which also boasted three cranes made out of cast iron, two stretching their long necks to the sky, and the other with its head bent low. Water sprang from its source at the crest of the Maple Hill and descended the slopes in several falls. The stream then passed beneath a stone bridge and dropped into a pool that was shaded by red rocks from the island of Sado before flowing into the pond at a spot where, in season, a patch of lovely irises bloomed. The pond was stocked both with carp and winter crucian. Twice a year, the Marquis allowed schoolchildren to come there on picnics. When Kiyoaki was a child, the servants had frightened him with stories about the snapping turtles. Long ago, when his grandfather was ill, a friend had presented him with a hundred of these turtles in the hope that their meat would rebuild his strength. Released into the pond, they had bred rapidly. 
Once a snapping turtle got your finger in its beak, the servants told Kiyoaki, that was the end of it. There were several pavilions used for the tea ceremony and also a large billiard room. Behind the main house, wild yams grew thick in the grounds, and there was a grove of cypresses planted by Kiyoaki's grandfather and intersected by two paths. One led to the rear gate. The other climbed a small hill to the plateau at its top, where a shrine stood at one corner of a wide expanse of grass. This was where his grandfather and two uncles were enshrined. The steps, lanterns, and tori, all stone, were traditional, but on either side of the steps, in place of the usual lion dogs, a pair of cannon shells from the Russo-Japanese War had been painted white and set in the ground. Somewhat lower down, there was a shrine to Inari, the harvest god, behind a magnificent trellis of wisteria. The anniversary of his grandfather's death fell at the end of May. Thus, the wisteria was always in full glory when the family gathered here for the services, and the women would stand in its shade to avoid the glare of the sun. Their white faces, powdered even more meticulously than usual for the occasion, were dappled in violet, as though some exquisite shadow of death had fallen across their cheeks. The women. No one could count exactly the multitude of women who lived in the Matsuge mansion. Kiyoaki's grandmother, of course, took precedence over them all, though she preferred to live in retirement at some distance from the main house, with eight maids to attend to her needs. Every morning, rain or shine, Kiyoaki's mother would finish dressing and go at once with two maids in attendance to pay her respects to the old lady. And every day, the old lady would scrutinize her daughter-in-law's appearance. That hairstyle isn't very becoming. Why not try doing it in the high-collar way tomorrow? I'm sure it would look better on you, she would say, her eyes narrowed lovingly. But when the hair was arranged the western way next morning, the old lady would comment, Really, Tsuchiko, a high-collar hairdo simply doesn't suit an old-fashioned Japanese beauty like you. Please try the Marumage style tomorrow. And so, for as long as Kiyoaki could remember, his mother's coiffure had been perpetually changing. The hairdressers and their apprentices were in constant attendance. Not only did his mother's hair demand their services, but they had to look after more than forty maids. However, they had shown concern for the hair of a male member of the household on only one occasion. This was when Kiyoaki was in his first year at the middle school attached to Piers School. The honor had fallen to him of being selected to act as a page in the New Year's festivities at the Imperial Palace. I know the people at school want you to look like a little monk, said one of the hairdressers, but that shaved head just won't look right with your fine costume today. But they'll scold me if my hair is long. All right, all right, said the hairdresser. Let me see what I can do to improve it. You'll be wearing a hat in any case, but I think we can arrange things so that even when you take it off, you'll outshine all the other young gentlemen. So he said, but Kiyoaki at thirteen had had his head clipped so closely that it looked blue. When the hairdresser parted his hair, the comb hurt, and the hair oil stung his skin. For all the hairdresser's vaunted skill, the head reflected in the mirror looked no different from any boy's, yet at the banquet Kiyoaki was praised for his extraordinary beauty. The Emperor Meiji himself had once honored the Matsuge residence with his presence. To entertain his imperial majesty, an exhibition of sumo wrestling had been staged beneath a huge ginkgo tree, around which a space had been curtained off. The emperor watched from a balcony on the second floor of the western house. Kiyoaki confided to the hairdresser that on that occasion he had been permitted to appear before the emperor, and his majesty had deigned to pat him on the head. That had taken place four years ago, but it nevertheless was possible that the emperor might remember the head of a mere page at the New Year's festivities. Really? exclaimed the hairdresser, overwhelmed. Young master, you mean to say you were caressed by the emperor himself? So saying, he slid backward across the tatami floor, clapping his hands in genuine reverence at the child. 
The costume of a page attending a lady of the court consisted of matching blue velvet jacket and trousers, the latter reaching to just below the knees. Down either side of the jacket was a row of four large white fluffy pompons, and more were attached to the cuffs and the trousers. The page wore a sword at his waist, and the shoes on his white stockinged feet were fastened with black enamel buttons. A white silk tie was knotted in the center of his broad lace collar, and a tricorn hat, adorned with a large feather, hung down his back on a silk cord. Each new year, about twenty sons of the nobility with outstanding school records were selected to take turns, in fours, bearing the train of the empress, or in pairs to carry the train of an imperial princess during the three days of festivities. Kiyoaki carried the train of the empress once and did the same for the princess Kasuga. When it was his turn to bear the empress's train, she had proceeded with solemn dignity down corridors fragrant with the musky incense lit by the palace attendants, and he had stood in attendance behind her during the audience. She was a woman of great elegance and intelligence, but by then she was already elderly, close to sixty. Princess Kasuga, however, was not much more than thirty. Beautiful, elegant, imposing, she was like a flower at its moment of perfection. Even now, Kiyoaki could remember less about the rather sober train favored by the empress than about the princess's broad sweep of white ermine with its scattered black spots and its border of pearls. The empress's train had four loops for the page's hands and the princess's too. Kiyoaki and the others had been so exhaustively drilled that they had no trouble in holding firm while advancing at a steady pace. Princess Kasuga's hair had the blackness and sheen of fine lacquer. Seen from behind, her elaborate coiffure seemed to dissolve into the rich white skin textures of the nape of her neck, leaving single strands against her bare shoulders, whose faint sheen was set off by her décolleté. She held herself erect and walked straight ahead with a firm step, betraying no tremor to her train-bearers, but in Kiyoaki's eyes that great fan of white fur seemed to glow and fade to the sound of music, like a snow-covered peak first hidden, then exposed by a fluid pattern of clouds. At that moment, for the first time in his life, he was struck by the full force of womanly beauty, a dazzling burst of elegance that made his senses real. Princess Kasuga's lavish use of French perfume extended to her train, and its fragrance overpowered the musky odor of incense. Some way down the corridor, Kiyoaki stumbled for a moment, inadvertently tugging at the train. The princess turned her head slightly, and, as a sign that she was not at all annoyed, smiled gently at the youthful offender. Her gesture went unnoticed, body perfectly erect in that fractional turn, she had allowed Kiyoaki a glimpse of a corner of her mouth. At that moment, a single wisp of hair slipped over her clear white cheek, and out of the fine-drawn corner of an eye, a smile flashed in a spark of black fire. But the pure line of her nose did not move. It was as if nothing had happened. This fleeting angle of the princess's face too slight to be called a profile, made Kiyoaki feel as if he had just seen a rainbow flicker for a bare instant through a prism of pure crystal. His father, Marquis Matsuge, watched his son's part in the festivities, absorbing the boy's brilliant appearance in his beautiful ceremonial costume and savoring the complacency of a man who sees a lifelong dream fulfilled. This triumph dispelled completely his lingering fears of still seeming an impostor, for all his attempts to establish himself as someone fit to receive the emperor in his own home. For now, in the person of his own son, the Marquis had seen the ultimate fusion of the aristocratic and the samurai traditions, a perfect congruence between the old court nobles and the new nobility. But as the ceremony continued, the Marquis's gratification at the praise people had lavished on the boy's looks changed to feelings of discomfort. At thirteen, Kiyoaki was altogether too handsome. 
Putting aside natural affection for his own son, the Marquis could not help noticing that he stood out even in comparison with the other pages. His pale cheeks flushed crimson when he was excited, his brows were sharply defined, and his wide eyes, still childishly earnest, were framed by long lashes. They were dark and had a seductive glint in them. And so the Marquis was roused by the flood of compliments to take note of the exceptional beauty of his son and heir, and he sensed something disquieting in it. He was touched by an uneasy premonition. But Marquis Matsuge was an extremely optimistic man, and he shook off his discomfiture as soon as the ceremony was over. Similar apprehensions were more persistent in the mind of young Inuma, who had come to live in the Matsuke household as a boy of seventeen the year before Kiyoaki's service as a page. Inuma had been recommended as Kiyoaki's personal tutor by the middle school of his village in Kagoshima, and he had been sent to the Matsugais with testimonies to his mental and physical abilities. The present Marquis's father was revered as a fierce and powerful god in Kagoshima, and Inuma had visualized life in the Matsuge household entirely in terms of what he had heard at home or at school about the exploits of the former Marquis. In his year with them, however, their luxurious way of life had disrupted this expectation and had wounded his youthfully puritanical sensibilities. He could shut his eyes to other things, but not to Kiyoaki, who was his personal responsibility. Everything about Kiyoaki, his looks, his delicacy, his sensitivity, his turn of mind, his interests, grated on Inuma. And everything about the Marquis and Marquise's attitude toward their son's education was equally distressing. I'll never raise a son of mine that way, not even if I am made a Marquis. What weight do you suppose the Marquis gives to his own father's tenets? The Marquis was punctilious in observing the annual rites for his father, but almost never spoke of him. At first, Inuma used to dream that the Marquis would talk more often about his father, and that his reminiscences might reveal something of the affection in which he held his father's memory. But in the course of the year, such hopes flickered and died. The night that Kiyoaki returned home after performing his duties as an imperial page, the Marquis and his wife gave a private family dinner to celebrate the occasion. When the time came for Kiyoaki to hurry off to bed, Inuma helped him to his room. The thirteen-year-old boy's cheeks were flushed with the wine that his father, half as a joke, had forced upon him. He burrowed into the silken quilts and let his head fall back on the pillow, his breath warm and heavy. The tracery of blue veins under his close-cropped hair throbbed around his earlobes, and the skin was so extraordinarily transparent that one could almost see the fragile mechanism inside. Even in the half-light of the room, his lips were red. And the sounds of breathing that came from this boy, who looked as though he had never experienced anguish, seemed to be the mocking echo of a sad folk song. Inuma looked down at his face, at the sensitive darting eyes with their long lashes, the eyes of an otter, and he knew that it was hopeless to expect him to swear the enthusiastic oaths of loyalty to the emperor that a night like this would have invoked in any normal young Japanese boy striving toward manhood, who had been privileged to carry out so glorious a task. Kiyoaki's eyes were now wide open as he lay on his back staring at the ceiling, and they were filled with tears. And when this glistening gaze turned on him, Inuma's distaste deepened, but this made it all the more imperative for him to believe in his own loyalty. When Kiyoaki apparently felt too warm, he pulled his bare arms, slightly flushed, out from under the quilt and started to fold them behind his head. Inuma admonished him and pulled shut the loose collar of his nightgown. You'll catch cold. You ought to go to sleep now. Inuma, you know, I made a blunder today. If you promise not to tell father or mother, I'll say what it was. What was it? Today, when I was carrying the princess's train, I stumbled a little. But the princess just smiled and forgave me. Inuma was repelled by these frivolous words, by the absence of any sense of responsibility, by the tearful look of rapture in those eyes, by everything. 
Chapter 2 It was hardly surprising then that by the time Kiyoaki turned 18, his preoccupations had served to isolate him more and more from his surroundings. He had grown apart from more than just his family. The teachers at the Peers School had instilled in their pupils the supremely noble example of the principal, General Nogi, who had committed suicide to follow his emperor in death, and ever since they had started to emphasize the significance of his act, suggesting that their educational tradition would have been the poorer had the general died on a sickbed, an atmosphere of Spartan simplicity had come to permeate the school. Kiyoaki, who had an aversion to anything smacking of militarism, had come to loathe school for this reason. His only friend was his classmate, Shigakuni Honda. There were, of course, many others who would have been delighted to be friends with Kiyoaki, but he didn't like the youthful coarseness of his contemporaries. He shunned their rough, coltish ways and was further repelled by their crude sentimentality when they mindlessly roared out the school song. Kiyoaki was drawn only to Honda, with his quiet, composed, rational temperament, unusual in a boy of his age. Even so, the two had little in common in appearance or temperament. Honda seemed older than he was. Though his features were quite ordinary, he tended to assume a somewhat pompous air. He was interested in studying law and was gifted with keen intuition, but it was a power he tended to disguise. To look at him was to believe that he was indifferent to sensual pleasures, but there were times when he seemed fired by some deep passion— At these moments, Honda, who always kept his mouth firmly shut, as he kept his somewhat nearsighted eyes severely narrowed and his brows in a frown, was to be caught with a hint of parted lips in his expression. Kiyoaki and Honda were perhaps as different in their makeup as the flower and the leaf of a single plant. Kiyoaki was incapable of hiding his true nature, and he was defenseless against society's power to inflict pain. His still unawakened sensuality lay dormant within him, unprotected as a puppy in a March rain, body shivering, eyes and nose pelted with water. Honda, on the other hand, had quite early in life grasped where danger lay, choosing to shelter from all storms, whatever their attraction. Despite this, however, they were remarkably close friends. Not content to see each other in school, they would also spend Sundays together at one or the other of their homes. And because the Matsuge estate had more to offer in the way of walks and other amusements, Honda usually came to Kiyoaki's house. One October Sunday in 1912, the first year of the Taisho era, on an afternoon when the maple leaves were almost in their prime, Honda arrived in Kiyoaki's room to suggest that they go boating on the pond. Had this been a year like any other, there would have been a growing number of visitors coming to admire the maple leaves. But as the Matsugais had been in mourning since the emperor's death the previous summer, they had suspended normal social activities. An extraordinary stillness lay over the park. Well, if you want to, the boat will take three. We'll get Inuma to row us. Why do we need anybody to row us? I'll row said Honda, remembering the dour expression of the young man who had just needlessly escorted him with silent but relentless obsequiousness to Kiyoaki's room. Kiyoaki smiled. You don't like him, do you, Honda? It's not that I don't like him. It's just that for all the time I've known him, I still can't tell what's going on inside his head. He's been here six years, so I take him for granted now, like the air I breathe. We certainly don't see eye to eye, but he's devoted to me all the same. He's loyal. He studies hard. You can depend on him. Kiyoaki's room was on the second floor, facing the pond. It had originally been in Japanese style, but had been redecorated to look Western, with a carpet and Western furniture. Honda sat down on the windowsill. Looking over his shoulder, he took in the whole sweep of the pond, the island and the hill of maples beyond. The water lay smooth in the afternoon sun. Just below him, he could see the boats moored in a small inlet. At the same time, he was mulling over his friend's lack of enthusiasm. Kiyoaki never took the lead, though sometimes he would join in with an air of utter boredom, only to enjoy himself in his own way. The role of exhorter and leader 
then always fell to Honda if the pair were to do anything at all. You can see the boats, can't you? said Kiyoaki. Yes, of course I can, Honda replied, glancing dubiously behind him. What did Kiyoaki mean by his question? If one were forced to hazard a guess, it would be that he was trying to say that he had no interest in anything at all. He thought of himself as a thorn, a small, poisonous thorn jabbed into the workmanlike hand of his family. And this was his fate, simply because he had acquired a little elegance. A mere fifty years before, the Matsugais had been a sturdy, upright samurai family, no more, eking out a frugal existence in the provinces. But in a brief span of time, their fortunes had soared. By Kiyoaki's time, the first traces of refinement were threatening to take hold on a family that, unlike the court nobility, had enjoyed centuries of immunity to the virus of elegance. And Kiyoaki, like an ant that senses the approaching flood, was experiencing the first intimations of his family's rapid collapse. His elegance was the thorn, and he was well aware that his aversion to coarseness, his delight in refinement, were futile. He was a plant without roots. Without meaning to undermine his family, without wanting to violate its traditions, he was condemned to do so by his very nature. And this poison would stunt his own life as it destroyed his family. The handsome young man felt that this futility typified his existence. His conviction of having no purpose in life other than to act as a distillation of poison was part of the ego of an eighteen-year-old. He had resolved that his beautiful white hands would never be soiled or calloused. He wanted to be like a pennant, dependent on each gusting wind. The only thing that seemed valid to him was to live for the emotions, gratuitous and unstable, dying only to quicken again, dwindling and flaring without direction or purpose. At the moment, nothing interested him. Boating, his father had thought the little green and white boat he had imported from abroad to be stylish. As far as his father was concerned, the boat was culture, culture made tangible. But what of it? Who cared about a boat? Honda, with his inborn intuition, understood Kiyoaki's sudden silence. Although they were the same age, Honda was more mature. He was, in fact, a young man who wanted to lead a constructive life, and he had made up his mind about his future role. With Kiyoaki, however, he always took care to seem less sensitive and subtle than he was, for he knew that his friend was quite receptive to his careful displays of obtuseness, the only bait that seemed to draw a rise from Kiyoaki. And this streak of deception ran through their whole friendship. "'It would do you good to get some exercise,' said Honda brusquely. I know that you can't have been reading all that much, but you look as if you'd read your way through a library. Kiyoaki smiled by way of reply. Honda was right. It was not his books that had drained him of energy, but his dreams. A whole library wouldn't have exhausted him as much as his constant dreaming, night after night. The very night before, he had dreamed of his own coffin, made of unpainted wood. It stood in the middle of an empty room with large windows, and outside the pre-dawn darkness was shading to a deep blue. It was filled with the sound of birdsong. A young woman clung to the coffin, her long black hair trailing from her drooping head, her slender shoulders racked with sobs. He wanted to see her face, but could make out no more than her pale, graceful forehead with its delicate peak of black hair. The coffin was half covered with a leopard skin bordered in pearls. The first muted glow of the dawn flickered on the row of jewels. Instead of funeral incense, a scent of western perfume hung over the room with the fragrance of sun-ripened fruit. Kiyoaki seemed to be watching this from a great height, though he was convinced that his body lay inside the coffin. But sure as he was, he still felt the need to see it there by way of confirmation. However, like a mosquito in the morning light, his wings lost all power and ceased beating in midair. He was utterly incapable of looking inside the nailed-down coffin lid. And then, as his frustration grew more and more intense, he woke up. 
Kiyoaki took out his secret journal and wrote all this down. Finally, the two of them went down to the landing and unfastened the mooring rope. The calm surface of the water reflected the flaming scarlet maples beginning to turn on the hill beyond. As they stepped into the boat, its wild rocking evoked in Kiyoaki his favorite feelings about the precariousness of life. At that instant, his inner thoughts seemed to describe a wide arc, clearly reflected in the fresh white trim of the boat. His spirits rose. Honda pushed against the stone landing with an oar and maneuvered the boat out onto the water. As the prow shivered, the brilliant scarlet surface of the water, the smooth ripples, heightened Kiyoaki's sense of liberation. The dark water seemed to speak in a deep, solemn voice. My eighteenth autumn, this day, this afternoon, this moment, never to come again, he thought, something already slipping irrevocably away. Shall we take a look at the island? What's the fun in that? There's nothing to see. Don't be a killjoy. Come on, let's go and look, Honda urged. His voice sounded deep in his chest as he rode with a lively vigor that suited his years. As Kiyoaki stared fixedly down into the pond, he heard the faint sound of the waterfall far away on the other side of the island. He could not see a great deal because of the cloudy water and the red of the maples reflected in it. There were carp swimming down there, he knew, and at the very bottom snapping turtles lurked in the shelter of the rocks. His childhood fears flared for a moment, then died. The hot sun struck the backs of their close-shaven necks. It was a peaceful, uneventful, glorious Sunday afternoon. Yet Kiyoaki remained convinced that at the bottom of this world, which was like a leather bag filled with water, there was a little hole, and it seemed to him that he could hear time leaking from it, drop by drop. They reached the island at a spot where a single maple stood among the pines and climbed the stone steps to the grassy clearing at the top with the three iron cranes. The boys sat down at the feet of the pair that were stretching their necks upward in an eternal mute cry, then lay back on the grass to stare up at the late autumn sky. The rough grass pricked through the backs of their kimonos, making Kiyoaki rather uncomfortable. It gave Honda, however, the sensation of having to endure an exquisitely refreshing pain that was fragmented and spread out under his back. Out of the corners of their eyes, they could see the two cranes, weathered by wind and rain and soiled by chalky white bird droppings. The birds' supple, curved necks stretched against the sky, moved slowly with the rhythm of the shifting clouds. It's a beautiful day. In all our lives, we may not have many like this. So perfect, said Honda, stirred by some premonition. Are you talking about happiness? asked Kiyoaki. I don't remember saying anything about happiness. Well, that's all right then. I'd be much too scared to say the things you do. I don't have that kind of courage. I'm convinced that the trouble with you is you're horribly greedy. Greedy men are apt to seem miserable. Look, what more could you want than a day like this? Something definite. What it might be, I've no idea. The young man answered wearily, as handsome as he was indecisive. Fond as he was of his friend, there were times when Kiyoaki found Honda's keenly analytic mind and his confident turns of phrase, the very image of youthful promise, a severe trial to his capricious nature. All at once, he rolled over on his stomach on the grass and raised his head, staring across the water at a spot some distance away in the direction of the garden that fronted the drawing-room of the main house. Stepping stones set in white sand led from it to the edge of the pond, which was intricately scalloped with small inlets crossed by a network of stone bridges. He had noticed a group of women there. Spring Snow, chapters one and two from the Sea of Fertility. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature and our look at Yukio Mishima and his works. 
We travel next week from Japan to South America, Colombia in particular, with a pit stop in New Jersey and Miami to pick up a guest who will be our guide. My thanks to our emailers today, Samantha in the Philippines and Joseph at the middle school and Hannah in the nursery with that little one of hers. We are part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. Hear more at learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com or also at patreon.com slash literature. If you'd like to throw a few coins in our cup, they land silently because they come from your credit card, but we appreciate the virtual jingle. Nevertheless, we can hear it in our mind's ear, people. And please do rank us and review us if you like the show. And if not, you can go straight. Well, I won't sully the show with that kind of a statement. If you don't like the show, go review a show that you do like. How about that? There's no real need to take down little podcast people. There's room out here for all of us. We're all just trying to survive. Stay positive, people. And stay healthy and keep your chin up. Keep your eyes open, your eyes wide and your brain open and your spirit lifted and your mind ready to embrace the world. Expose yourself to it, to the world. Embrace it. Drink it all in. Drink deep and then come back for more. And when you're gasping for breath, having lived so hard and loved so much, click that little five-star button at the History of Literature podcast. No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't return to the mundane on my account. Embrace life. Drink it in. Drink deep. And then take a deep breath and do it all over again. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.